0: Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash the economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Six months ago today, the World Health Organization was first alerted to a pneumonia of unknown etiology in Wuhan, China. As the weeks passed, our correspondents in China witnessed a lockdown like none the world had ever seen.
1: When you get close to the border, there are police checkpoints, uh, there are medics in protection suits, masks and goggles,
2: taking everyone's temperature.
0: At the end of January, the WHO weighed in on what was clearly a global disaster in the making.
2: I'm declaring a public health emergency of international concern over the global outbreak of novel coronavirus.
0: Lockdowns started to spread, first in Europe and eventually to America. My administration is recommending that all Americans, including the young and healthy, work to engage in schooling from home when possible. Those drastic measures have battered the world economy. The IMF reckons it will shrink by at least 4.9% this year. This is an unprecedented crisis and this is indeed the worst recession since the Great Depression. And no country has been spared. There are now more than 10 million confirmed cases of COVID-19 worldwide. More than 500,000 people have died. In many parts of the world, cases are still rising sharply.
3: We begin this hour in Brazil, where health officials have announced more than 42,000 new cases.
2: The Australian government is encouraging everyone in the state of Victoria with cold and flu symptoms to be tested for COVID-19. The northeastern state of Assam has decided to go back under a full lockdown. China has reported the highest daily number of new coronavirus cases in two months.
0: 25 states now reporting more cases this week than last week. Arizona and Texas today setting new state records for hospitalizations. But here's the really troubling part. Coronavirus will not be the last bug to jump from animals into humans. Today, we're taking a long look at risks, the catastrophic kind such as pandemics, and far worse, existential risks for humanity. Some are certain, if unpredictable. Others, such as nuclear war or supervolcano eruptions, are worrisome maybes. COVID-19 is a sharp reminder that governments don't always have a game plan when the game changes. For some risks, it's not even clear what preparedness looks like. But if the world that humans have wrought for themselves is to continue, some thought needs to go into these unlikely possibilities. Whether the threats burst up from beneath the earth, evolve in livestock markets, or arrive from the skies.
2: September 1859, a guy called Richard Carrington, who actually worked at the Royal Greenwich Observatory, observed a sharp, bright, white spot on the sun. And shortly thereafter, the Earth basically freaked out.
0: Oliver Morton is The Economist's briefings editor.
2: The skies became choked with aurora, the uh, northern lights and the southern lights. They actually saw the northern lights in Colombia that September. And this was because hundreds of millions of tons of highly energetic charged particles had been thrown out of the corona of the sun and had traveled 150 million kilometers to the Earth um, in a few hours and had hit the Earth's magnetic field, causing all sorts of electromagnetic chaos. Now, mostly, this was just pretty, because mostly, humans didn't use electromagnetism for very much at the time. Now, if you'd been looking at your compass, it might have freaked you out. And if you were an operator on the newfangled telegraph, everything went completely crazy because there were induced currents sort of like locking people's little Morse code tappers down or running the system even when there was no electricity going into it from batteries. So the whole electromagnetic world was in chaos. It was the first recorded occasion in which an event in the sky directly influenced the Earth. What Carrington saw was something that reset the way the Earth was working for a few days. Now, if that happened again now, it will not have escaped your notice that the world is now very, very electromagnetic. The fact that you're listening to this on a podcast should give you some insight into that. And if this were to happen now, not only would induced currents go through the whole of the world's electricity grid, you'd also have the added effect that it would freak out the ionosphere that goes around the, Earth, the outer part of the atmosphere, inflating it like an angry balloon so that it starts pulling down satellites. Other satellites are getting fried by the charged particles themselves, and signals from satellites are getting distorted by all this electromagnetic freak out so that the GPS system which navigates your car if you're able to drive, or your plane if you're on a plane these days. That freaks out too. So in general, how bad would this be? No one knows for sure. But towards the tail end of the possibilities? Really, really unpleasant. Trillions of dollars, thousands of lives unpleasant. The world faces a number of catastrophic threats, but there isn't a huge universe of these things. It's not like there are sort of like an infinite number of ways that you can imagine a catastrophe coming to the earth. There's actually quite a small realm of these things. And it's not unreasonable to ask that governments should at least give some thought to them. And by and large, they really don't. No one gets very strongly rewarded for planning for catastrophic risks, which are basically unlikely. Um, you know, people talk about low probability, high-impact events, one of the things that idealistically you kind of want from a government is that it just thinks about things that might really, really hurt the citizenry. And these things, even though they're low probability because of that high-impact part of the coupling, they really do hurt. The current pandemic really does demonstrate the degree to which early warning plus plans is a winning combination. Countries that had good plans and were able to execute them well, and a a, a spectacular example here is Taiwan, have ridden things out really quite well. Countries that did not have those benefits are suffering and will suffer more. Early warning plus plans, plus the ability to carry plans out. Those are the things that you need in the face of all these. They won't help equally with all of them, but it's so much better than just making it up as you go along.
0: The truth is that the world did get some early warning about COVID-19, or at least something like it. In February 2018, a committee convened by the World Health Organization put together a list of diseases that posed big public health risks, but for which there were few or no countermeasures. The list had some recognizable threats—Ebola, SARS, Zika, Rift Valley Fever—but it also included Disease X. At the
3: end of the list, we wrote Disease X. What was the idea of putting this disease that you said does not exist at the end of the, our list?
1: So, Disease X is a concept. Let's say it's a placeholder. To be sure that
0: Disease X had an ambiguous, mysterious air about it that news reports seized upon. The World Health Organization says something called Disease X. Is the latest
3: concern threatening people right now around the world? They're
0: listing a disease that we don't yet know what the title of the disease is. We don't even know what the disease could be.
1: It's not a disease in and of itself, but rather a classification given to a group of diseases. The next potential threats to Madison,
0: America, and or the world. Disease X would be caused by a pathogen never before seen in humans, would emerge from animals, and would cause a pandemic leaving broken lives and economies in its wake. The WHO didn't have early information about the coronavirus. It just recognized that, in today's world, pathogens evolving to threaten humanity are inevitable. In fact, just yesterday, a novel virus was identified in pigs in China that could present another emerging risk.
1: Zoonoses are diseases that can transfer between animals and humans and they've been a fact of life for thousands of years ever since humans and animals have had close contact however they don't have to turn into global health problems
0: Alok Jha is the economists science correspondent
1: I spoke with Peter Daszak he's a disease ecologist who's also head of the independent research organization EcoHealth Alliance He says that with the right precautions, it should be possible to ensure that future zoonotic outbreaks don't actually become pandemics. The plan is treat pandemics as a public health issue. You get ready for them, you prepare for them, and you prevent them. You know, we're not going to defeat the pandemic era by waiting for vaccines. We need to get ahead of the curve on this stuff. The precautions that Dr Daszak and his colleagues have in mind can be summarized in three points. The first part is to have a worldwide effort to understand and track the hundreds of thousands of as yet unseen viruses that might threaten human health. We know of about 260 human viruses that uh, can infect people. There could be hundreds of thousands, possibly millions more that we just don't know about. Another layer to the solution is to monitor humans themselves. So if you take lots of blood samples all around the world constantly and look at what's actually transferring into humans, look at the antibodies that people are creating, look at clusters of outbreaks. And the third part of that programme would be to take all the information you've got about emerging viruses and viruses in the wild, combine it with the information you're getting about what's entering humans through the blood samples, and then use that data to get a head start in developing things like drugs, antivirals, vaccines, that could sort of meet an emerging disease halfway. So that basically if you find there's a novel disease outbreak somewhere in the world that's causing problems, you've kind of half developed a treatment that might work. The first part of this uh, plan to hunt for viruses in the wild Several groups have actually tried this already. So an American agency back in 2009 set up a programme called PREDICT and it went to 30 or so countries in the world and they identified something like 1,200 new viruses. And what the people behind PREDICT have said next is we need a global virome project. This would be a decade-long effort to look around the entire world for millions of unknown viruses, read out their genomes and have them ready in a bank for when one of them transfers into humans and starts to cause problems. One of the researchers behind PREDICT is Jonna Mazet. She's an epidemiologist at the University of California, Davis, and she's also one of the people proposing the Global Virum Project as the next phase of what PREDICT did. So we really need to sample almost all of the species on Earth. Uh, mammals and water birds, because they're the hosts. And so, if we understand the species and the viruses they carry, we can map where those species go and have a better idea of where they are taking the viruses. So, you don't have When the Global Virum Project was first proposed, they reckoned it would cost $4 billion. Uh, over 10 years to find all these viruses, which even the proposers of the project thought was a huge amount of money. So they also proposed a stripped-down version, which was only a billion dollars, which would find something like 70% of the world's viruses. Now, no funding bodies took the bait um, and funded that project. But as Jonna said... If you look at the cost of the pandemic now, that's heading into something like the trillions. Now, when we're talking in the trillions, and frankly, World Bank, with some of our team, were forecasting that it would be in the trillions if we had a horrible Mm. pandemic, and it is. So, um, you know, we just can't afford not to do this. So with the Global Viren Project, you'd be able to identify the viruses that might spill over. But also the second plank of the preparedness is to monitor human beings. And so another proposal is something called the Global Immunological Observatory. This would monitor blood banks and other blood samples used for clinical purposes all around the world to... Track for evidence of new viruses, antibodies, etc. So, this would reveal not only what was there but also the immune responses being formed in response to new threats. And that kind of surveillance would be very useful for preparing countermeasures. You could help to prepare broad spectrum antiviral drugs, vaccines, if you could understand how a novel virus is already affecting the immune systems of people. Now, it's all very well to have these very ambitious and visionary plans for how you might track the world for viruses and immune responses. But in the real world, unfortunately, a lot of this would depend on how governments and members of the public want to share their data. So, of course, you know, people might worry that they're being surveilled. Governments might not want information about the health of their citizens to be shared around the world. And, And you do need this information shared around the world for it to really work politics and the practicalities required could be a really big nut to crack in all of this. Now that the world has experienced a pandemic that's affected almost everyone, whether they've become infected themselves or not, uh, maybe it'll cause people and governments to think much more seriously about things that they could do now to stop the next outbreak from becoming a global health catastrophe. And as Dr Daszak told me, the cost of not doing anything in response to the COVID-19 pandemic is just too high. The return on investment means we won't see a pandemic. We may never know how much it saves, but we know that when it, when we don't do that, it costs us trillions and hundreds of thousands of lives.
0: To hear more from Alec and some of the researchers behind the Global Virome Project, Listen to the next episode of Babbage, our show about science and technology. It's out tomorrow, wherever you get your podcasts. Businesses have long had to cope with the impact
1: of business cycles. Now, they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere irrespective of the ups
0: and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities in the 5th Annual Alex
1: Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com.
0: It only takes a bit of imagination to realize that a pandemic – that global health catastrophe isn't even the gravest risk that humanity faces. What about events the modern world has never seen? What about threats not even yet imagined that might take out civilization altogether?
3: Humans are, for the most part, short-term creatures. Hal Hodson is The Economist's Asia technology correspondent. We see this in the world of personal finance, where, you know, as as we kind of live through stock market downturns, humans are quite bad at sort of riding it out, even if that's their intention for the long term. And we're also bad at thinking in the long term over our own lives and even over generations. Uh, Societies show a strong tendency to to take things more seriously if they have happened to them within the last couple of generations, i.e. within living memory. You can see this in the countries that have built infrastructure to deal with kind of irregular but bad threats. So the Netherlands has great flood defences because the Netherlands gets flooded all the time. California has a a, a, a a well-built earthquake warning system for the same reason. It gets earthquakes all the time. But there are plenty of risks, some of them existential risks, risks which threaten to sort of wipe out human life on Earth, which just because they haven't happened, humans are... A, not very well prepared for them, but B, it doesn't mean that they couldn't happen tomorrow. There are lots of these risks there's almost as many as you could imagine but the main ones we think about you can break them down into three categories the first is natural risks and those are things like the carrington event that ollie talked about earlier on the show where a giant electromagnetic storm above earth's atmosphere knocks out electricity grids and you know havoc ensues there's also things like super volcanoes and asteroid strikes in that category um the, the other category uh, or the other two categories are kind of subcategories of each other and they're anthropogenic risks. They're risks that are created by human activity itself. This means things like climate change, which is created because humans burn fossil fuels. Uh, it means things like nuclear war where, you know, everybody shoots enough nukes at each other to create nuclear winter and nobody can grow any food anymore. Um, And there's a a sort of sub-slash-third category of these risks, which is future risks. And this is things like artificial intelligence running out of control or bioweapons that are developed specifically to kill humans and somehow get out of control. There has
1: sprung
3: up in the last 20 years, an entire field of academia that is dedicated to kind of trying to quantify these risks, understand them, and recommend preparations for them. And the reason that existential risk is such a powerful field that so many people think about it is because they're thinking about how to save all of the future human lives that might be lost if, say, something as terrible as... A, a massive asteroid strike hit the Earth and all human life was obliterated. Their focus is on the moral imperative of saving the trillions of human lives yet to come. And that's kind of the motivating foundation for the field. Toby Ord, who is a one of the big voices in this field, a philosopher at the University of Oxford, he estimates that out when you take all of the anthropogenic and future risks that we talked about earlier and you, you sum up the probability that they will end human existence on Earth before the end of this century, he, he thinks that that risk sums up to one in six, a one in six chance that human life will be extinguished this century. So that's basically humanity playing Russian roulette or rolling a die to see if it survives this this, this next hundred years. That one in six number is quite scary. But there are lots of things that humans and governments and societies can can do about these, these, these threats, these hazards, even when we don't understand them very well. You already see things like this with monitoring for nuclear weapons testing. There's a surveillance network that covers the whole world of sensors that sort of listen for the sound of nuclear explosions or for the seismic wave of nuclear explosions transmitting through the earth. And all of that is to keep a wrap on nuclear testing and the development of new weapons. But then, of course, some of these threats, like, say, supervolcanoes or even Carrington events, are just inherently unpredictable there's there's absolutely no reason why a Carrington event or a supervolcano or both couldn't happen tomorrow it would be it would be somewhat unlikely uh, but there's no reason that it couldn't and so in, in the absence of being able to predict those things then all you can really do is is prepare and mitigate and for for Carrington events there there are there are plans in place to stockpile transformers that would make it easier to get the electricity grid back up and running after that event but there's also a kind of there's a kind of political imperative here which is that all the planning and all the infrastructure all the satellites in the world they're not going to mean anything if when it when the thing happens the government of the day doesn't doesn't use the tools at their disposal and doesn't take it seriously Preparedness is clearly possible. Human development to this point shows us that this is true. If you think about tsunamis, which, if they come in with no warning, can just swamp an entire coastal region and kill hundreds of thousands, potentially millions of people if they're big enough so in the in the pacific rim there was no well-coordinated tsunami warning system until uh, the 2004 christmas day tsunami that killed hundreds of thousands of people and now 16 years later that system exists and there are warning networks that get a warning out in good time and have definitely saved tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of lives probably already in their existence and maybe maybe One doesn't need to wait to experience every different version of every different disaster before one prepares for it. Maybe societies can use their imaginations and take inspiration to some extent from COVID to look into the future at the risks that are out there and that the world is not prepared for and start thinking
0: about how to do that. It's going to take more than just starting to think about how to do that. What's needed are those game plans for when the game changes. But our briefings editor, Oliver Morton, reckons that planning on that scale, on that time horizon, is far more than epidemiologists, space scientists, or future-gazing academics can be expected to pull off.
2: In the 1650s, Thomas Hobbes pointed out, that there's stuff that you can only do collectively. Now, he wasn't actually thinking about coronal mass ejections um, or asteroids or anything like that. Broad-minded man might have crossed his mind, but we do not know that. He was worried about things that humans would generate, the disagreements that would lead to war and conflict within a state, and he wanted a power that could clamp down on all that. There are things where you just have to have a collective response, you have to have a collective power. If you really take seriously the idea that governments are there to serve the people who have given them their legitimacy, it's exactly the problems that no one can solve on their own that governments should be looking at. Governments used to show their mettle by conquering space, which had all sorts of problems normally because space was already occupied by other people. There's something lovely about the idea of governments conquering time, about looking out into the future and trying to find ways to make it safer for the many good, decent people who are going to try and make their lives there. This is a moment for all of us to reflect on the progress we have made and the lessons we have learned. The hard reality is this is not even close to being over. Although many countries have made some progress, globally the pandemic is actually speeding up we're all in this together and we're all in this for the long haul. we will need even greater stores of resilience patience humility and generosity in the months ahead we have already lost so much but We cannot
0: lose hope. WHO Director General Tedros Ghebreyesus speaking yesterday. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. We'll see you back here tomorrow.